All right. Hi, everybody. It's RCFB Talk 89. We're back for another great conversation. And today we're going to be talking Division II football. My name is Bob Akairi, and I'm going to be joined by Inkblot. He's a part of our team. He's also someone who delves deeply in Division II football. In fact, I can see one of our guests is here right now. Actually, they're both here right now. So really excited to have this conversation about Division II football with two guests with us tonight. We're having Chuck Bittner, national columnist for D2Football.com. This is his first year as national columnist. Most recently, he covered the SAC from 2017 to 21, and before that, the Peace Act from 2012 to 2016. And he's actually an alumnus of a Peace Act member, Bloomsburg. And then Chris Ferguson is D2 Football's CIAA writer since 2015. He's also a contributor to HBCU Game Day. He's an alumnus of Winston-Salem State in West Texas A&M and a grad student at former D2 school, Texas A&M Commerce. Both are panelists on Inside D2 Football, which streams live on YouTube and Facebook at 8 p.m. Eastern on Sundays. All right, I think we're still going to get, we're still working on getting Chuck up here, and we will. Chris, thanks for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm so excited. Oh, man, we're flattered. Thanks. So, Inc., have you made it up? Yeah, I'm here. Excellent. And Chuck, you're with us? I am here. Thanks. Uh, nice job stalling while I got my audio uh, working. Oh, we've had some hilarious. <laughs> yeah, so I, mean, I just want to, just to kind of start things off, for those who are less familiar with D2 football, could you give us just a quick kind of lay of the land in D2? Sure. I'll give you the 30,000-foot the, the level, and then I'm sure as we, uh, as we go into this, we'll probably dive a, a little bit deeper. So it, really, the way Division II functions as far as the product that you see on the field, it's no different than you would see watching Division I football on Saturdays or, or really even watching NFL football on Sundays. The, the product on the field is, is very much the same. Uh, typically, you're looking at smaller state universities and a lot of smaller private schools uh, that have a business model that involves wanting to fund scholarships for student athletes, but maybe not to the point that you're funding the entire football team with full scholarships. So you've got 36 scholarship equivalents, uh, equivalencies for a Division II football program. So the vast majority of the roster on a Division II team is, is not on full scholarship. So that's probably one of the biggest uh, things that's eye-opening for people who haven't really lived in the world of Division II when they start paying attention to it, just the concept that not every athlete that you see is on a full ride. So it's very different than, than what you're watching on, on Saturdays if you're watching the Big Ten or the SEC, where basically every athlete is, is a full scholarship player. So that's really one of the biggest differences. Uh, as far as the landscape of what we're seeing this year, uh, it's a really interesting time of the season because we're coming into that point of the year where things really start to take shape. We've got several teams. If I just look at our top 10 right now, most of those teams are still undefeated. A week from now, it'll probably be a lot fewer than that. Two weeks from now, we could be down to two or maybe three teams that are undefeated. And what's really starting to happen now is we've got conferences that are going into deeper into the conference schedule and going into their divisional schedule. Uh, as an example, in the Northern Sun Conference, I, I was chatting with our NSIC columnist, Matt Witwicky, earlier today. The South division in that league is absolutely stacked. You've got Sioux Falls leading that division at 5-0, and and you've got five teams directly behind them that are 4-1. and So as that stands today, you start to look at it and think, well, my gosh, I mean, all these teams can't possibly compete for the playoffs and top 25. 
those things are going to start to settle themselves over the next couple of weeks. So that's why we're really at a, a very exciting time of the year. Uh, and I'm sure we'll probably get to this, but I'm, gonna, I'm just kind of forecasting uh, out another week or so. The number one and number two teams in the D2 football top 25 poll, Ferris State and Grand Valley State out of the GLIAC conference. Those two teams have a very big meeting coming up. I believe it's next weekend. So um, things are about to get very, very exciting in Division Two. I would just say that some of the special things that happen in Division Two. So uh, you have 36 scholarships, which is a little bit different than the um, the FCS ranks at 63 and FBS at 85, which are partial scholarships, kind of like what Chuck was mentioning. Also, you know, some of the coaches that have gone up to bigger schools have come to the Division Two ranks, which makes it a really great feeder for coaches as well as 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 um, as players. So, yeah, I just want to kind of throw that out there as well because, you know, Division Two is a really special place. Uh, you see a lot of innovative offenses, a lot of really cool, you know, stats that happen um, from week to week, a lot of people who stand out. It, it's just a really exciting division to cover, and a lot of people so- sometimes look down on that. It's Division Two in a derogatory way, but it's really a, a very exciting division to watch and to cover. Yeah, and there's 164 teams out there, lots of options. You know, Chuck or Chris, could you kind of also just sort of lay out the playoff structure that they have? Because obviously, you know, never been a stranger to playoffs at Division Two. How do they design theirs? Yeah, we've been doing playoffs the right way in Division Two really since the beginning, uh, and, and it is a, a format that has evolved over the years. Currently, we're in a, a, a situation where 28 teams make the postseason tournament, and that's actually designed regionally. So Division Two has four super regions, and they're just named Super Region 1 through 4. But geographically, that equates to the Northeast, the Southeast, uh, basically the Midwest, and, and kind of the Southwest. So all of those uh, super regions are made up of, most are made four conferences. There's one that currently has three conferences that make up that super region. So you've got seven teams per region that will make the bracket or make the tournament. Uh, And then the structure of how those games are played is conducted regionally. For the most part, there's a little latitude to move some teams around within those regions. But for the most part, it's conducted regionally until we do get down to the final four. Uh, And probably the most interesting aspect of it is the way those teams are selected. There are no automatic bids in the Division II playoffs. Basically, everyone is an at-large. There is a provision called earned access that can allow a a team from a conference into the playoffs if they're not actually seated high enough or ranked high enough to make it uh, on merit if they're not in the top seven, but they are in the top nine, uh, one of those teams can make it. Happens maybe once every two to three years that, that that rule gets invoked. But it's very interesting. It's different from so many other NCAA sports where you have automatic bids for conference champions. The Division II playoff format does not work like that at all. And I'm probably missing a whole bunch of really great details. So, Chris, if there's anything I haven't covered with the playoff system, I know you and I could talk about it all day long. Yeah, one of the things that they try to do in the playoffs is try to avoid conference members to the extent possible in the first round. Also, I think one of the – I don't know if it's a drawback or or a plus, but, you know, Division Two is not funded in a way that 
allows for a lot of expenses to happen. So, you know, there are times where schools do have to travel. I think it's like a six, like 600 miles now, 500 miles. 600. Yeah. 600 miles. If it's, if it's within 600 miles, they got to take a bus. They, they're not going to, um, the NCAA doesn't play for flying. So that gets really interesting um, because they try to get people to play each other, get teams to play each other um, as close as possible while still trying to avoid conference uh, opponents in the first round, at least. And that gets really interesting because perennially within the super regions, you do have your stronger conferences, the PSAC, the Pennsylvania State Athletic Conference is a really good example of super region one, where you perennially have, you know, three to four teams that are vying for playoff spots. And you're trying to figure out how do you get them matched up against some of the other conferences in that region. So it's just really interesting. That's one one particularly really interesting way of uh, addressing the playoffs. The other thing I just want to throw out is Division Two was doing seven team playoffs before the NFL was. They copied us. <laughs> yeah, we're we're probably just uh, we're we're a couple weeks out from when we'll start to see those first releases of the regional ranking which that becomes probably the 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 height of interest in the division two season is probably around that you know week eight and nine time frame when we start to get our first look at regional rankings because then you really start to get a feel for who's in play who's a contender who's you know maybe going to be on the outside even if they're winning ball games that's probably the the height of interest in the division two season is right around that point in time and that's when we'll, we'll we all become mathematicians at that point, because we're, we're crunching numbers in Excel and, and looking to uh, to calculate strength of schedule and opponent winning percentages and opponents opponents winning percentages, which uh, I know we have somebody actually uh, listening in here who's an expert in, in how to crack the code on calculating strength of schedule. Uh, but that's really when things get probably the most interesting in the season when we get down to those uh, first couple releases of the regional rankings. Yeah, and I know that one of the awkward things when it comes to strength of schedule, is that some of those conferences, they don't even play anybody outside the conference during the regular season. So can you talk a little bit about that and the difficulty of comparing them? Well, it's really tricky because you've got at least three conferences. I think it is exactly three. You've got the Northern Sun, the MIAA, and the GAC, uh, mostly Midwest-based conferences. Uh, They do not play any out-of-conference games their entire schedule is just within their conference so a couple things about that at the end of the season especially within the the GAC and the MIAA it means that your strength for every team is exactly the same everybody finishes exactly 500 uh and Inkblock could probably explain that a little bit more if we need to go into those weeds but everybody finishes with the same strength of schedule so it becomes really hard to kind of compare those teams with teams in other conferences and also when you just don't have those teams competing with each other you just don't really have a good feel for how some of these teams compare on the field versus when you look at something like Colorado School of Mines and the RMAC the RMAC played a lot of really tough out-of-conference games School of Mines went to play Grand Valley. They played Angelo State. Uh, Pueblo played Midwestern State. Uh, Western Colorado played a lot of really tough out-of-conference games. So among those games, we kind of start to get a feel for how some of these teams compare and how they match up on the field. So when you've got teams that are siloed just within their conferences, we just don't really know. I, I was talking about the Northern Sun a few minutes ago. That's a great conference right now. 
And there's some really good teams in that, but we really don't know what they look like outside of their own conference. And just to kind of stay on that soapbox a little bit more about why out-of-conference games are important, it's also about, I look at it from the standpoint of you need to be a good neighbor as well, because we have some other conferences that have really seen their numbers fall off over the years. The, the GLIAC and the Gulf South Conference really come to mind. At one point, those were pretty big conferences. So it's fairly easy for them to put a schedule together. That's not the case anymore. And it's really tough for the GLIAC teams to even get 10 games scheduled, let alone 11. They have to get really creative. Um, you know, Grand Valley and Ferris State had to really search far and wide to pull together a good schedule. So if you've got more availability from teams in the Northern Sun and the MIAA, we could see some more of those games uh, materialize. And I mean, who wouldn't want to see like a week one game of like Ferris State at Northwest or uh, you know Pittsburgh State at Grand Valley? Uh, so I'm hoping that those leagues will uh, reevaluate their position uh, just competitively. And certainly from a rankings point of view, uh, it would make things much more much more equitable and give us a better a better feel for how some of these teams uh, match up with each other. You know, one of the, the things about scheduling too that I think Chuck's brought out so eloquently is you do have mo- like what is equivalent to like money games or actually having to pay teams to come travel. That that actually happened in 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 my league that I cover, where one of the schools traveled um, north and and had to be paid to come up. We kind of saw that with Grand Valley during COVID, where they lost a, a game because of COVID, and they were willing to travel literally anywhere in the country to play a game because they know of how hard it was going to be to even get another game on the schedule. I mean, that's how desperate things <laughs> sort of became. And and also, you know, the, unlike the other, the two divisions ahead of Division Two, you we really don't have a lot of teams on the West Coast and what ended up happening there, the great Northwest, that slowly but surely you had some teams that dropped football. They ended up creating from a geographical standpoint, like this mega conference in terms of distance, but the Lone Star Conference absorbed those teams. We're talking like Simon Fraser and British Columbia, Western Oregon, Central Washington, who's, you know, had some, some runs in the, um, in, in the playoffs. So, you know, scheduling is, is one of those things that are very interesting. Also, you do have instances where teams tend to go play some of some of FCS schools as well. And what's unique about the Division II structure is that for the playoffs, only Division II games count. So, you know, we've had like Lane College and HBCU in uh, Tennessee defeat Tennessee State and FCS school. It doesn't count. I know Ferris plays, it was in Montana next year, and, and, and that's pretty exciting to see, but it, it's not a game that's going to count for the playoffs, win or lose. So, you know, teams are getting very creative to play, and it would help if the um, those three silo scheduled schools did not. Um, have that schedule set up because there are teams that are certainly willing to travel. You know, Chris, you kind of touched on this. I know you cover the CIAA. How, you know, there's a couple of questions because obviously there's some strong teams that Virginia Union appears to be a leader in the conference. I know Bowie State historically was the stronger team and last year they really kind of demonstrated. What's the, what's the lay of the land right now in the CIAA? So the CIAA has 
12 teams that play football. It's a very wide disparity in terms of conference. And a lot of that is just because, you know, historically black colleges in general have less resources than a lot of their peers and even within the same state or with, you know, those who they compete against. So those resources tend to be funneled into basketball because they tend to do very well in men's and women's basketball at the Division II level. But in football, what you kind of see is uh, a situation where you have a team that has a run for one or two years, and then they kind of fall back to the middle of the pack because, uh, you know, you're really trying to find a gem. You're also trying to find a player who actually kind of fits into the culture, the HBCU culture, kind of understand that things are not going to be maybe as glamorous as they may be in other schools, but there's a lot of culture, there's a lot of tradition that you can have and have a very enriching college experience at, at the HBCU level. So, you know, I made a post a couple of days ago about how teams have sort of fared uh, in the top 25 in, in Division Two since 2006. And I think really HBCU sports in general sort of really took notice when Winston State had their run in the early 2010s. Who They actually made the national championship game two years, well, really three seasons after uh, aborting attempt, an attempt to Division One to the FCS ranks. And I think after that, you know, even predating that, I would say, you know, you had some really strong Tuskegee teams that really didn't get a chance to play in the playoffs from the SIAC. But after, I think after people realized that, you know, HBCUs really can't compete on the on the national stage, you start seeing, you know, Virginia State um, had two opportunities to, to to be in the playoffs since, since 2014, um, has won a playoff game. You had Bowie State who's had numerous opportunities in the playoffs and have won multiple games in the uh, and hosted as well and hosted, not just getting in, but hosting and actually uh, winning those games. And so I think Virginia Union is probably the latest iteration uh, of that from the CIAA. You know, the SIAC, um, the other historical that conference, has a pair of teams as well that are undefeated at the Division II level, Benedict and Albany State, that – also may have opportunities to, to, to win some games. And then you've got some one-loss teams in in both of those conferences, Virginia State, uh, Fort Valley State. So it's it just making things a lot more competitive. And it's really it just really great to watch. You know, Chris, I have a quick follow-up on that. You know, how, uh, and I'm not sure quite which direction to phrase it, but how important is D2 football to HBCUs that play it? Or how important are HBCUs to Division II football? Well, I think that it's really important from a number of different standpoints. So, you know, at the Division II level, you have a lot of smaller private schools, and football is definitely a way to recruit individuals to come to that school, for one. And so some of it can be literal survival. And, and so that's one way to look at it. I think the other thing is individuals who have not been to an HBCU game do not have a full appreciation for the pomp and circumstance until they actually come to the game. And because of that, you we tend to get a lot of people who, when we schedule out-of-conference games, and they come to the stadium, they, they, they walk away having a greater sense of appreciation for at least the atmosphere 
of the game. I mean, the SIAC is perennially the, the, the one league that is, you know, one or two in attendance every year. They do a lot of neutral site games. They have a lot of historic rivalries. When you talk about Albany State, Fort Valley, um, Tuskegee in, in, in Fort Valley, Morehouse gets thrown in there and they have Clark Atlanta right next door. And then, you know, even like this week in the CIAA, you have Virginia State, Bowie State, and homecoming, which is very high stakes. So there's just so much that goes into the atmosphere that it it just only adds to how how special Division II football really is. I know we've also talked about stadiums, so I have to kind of throw out there that, you know, like Winston State has the racetrack around their stadium. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's awesome. Yeah, so you you just have so many just different things that HBCUs sort of bring to to Division II football. And I would add to that that, you know, again, talking about how special Division II is, because of the way it's structured and because of the playoff system and the regionality of the playoff system, those schools – uh, those HBCU schools all have the same opportunity to compete for championships that every other school has. Uh, and I will also say, just to, to echo what Chris said, uh, if you ever get the chance to go to a homecoming game at an HBCU campus, particularly one that's that's winning and playing really well, uh, you will have a great time. You absolutely will have a great time. I do want to just throw out there that one of the one of the trends that I've been watching lately has been how the HBCU players sort of stack up individually against their peers from predominantly white institutions because, you know, the Division II has its own sort of Heisman trophy. And it's called the Harlem Hill Trophy. And that trophy, there, you know, there's a lot of um, talk about, you know, who deserves that trophy. There's a lot of stat watching. There's a lot of games watched. And one of the things that I just want to throw out there is, you know, HBCU players have had an opportunity in recent years to be recognized for that trophy and be very highly ranked finalists. That, you know, a few years ago, we had a, a quarterback, Amir Hall, who two years in a row um, finished top five in all of Division Two for passing yards. I think he was actually leading in passing yards in uh, 2017 until – Luis Perez, who was the actual winner from AM Commerce, um, passed them in the playoffs. Um, and, and this year, we certainly have that opportunity given the pace of uh, Jada Byers, who's the running back for Virginia Union, who leads all of Division II in rushing yards, touchdown scored, and all purpose yards at this point in the season. So it, it's just one of those things that there's, there's, there is talent at the, at, at the HBCU level. Um, in in Division Two, we've seen some individuals go to Division One from HBCUs and do you know, pretty well. So they're, they're, it's it's just there; those are two conferences not to be overlooked. And I know that one team that has been hard for the SIAC and the CIAA teams to get past in the playoffs is, of course, Valdosta State. And this year, Virginia Union goes there and beats them in Week One, but then. Valdosta State has been looking pretty shaky since then with their close win over Shorter, who is not who is usually near the bottom of the conference. And then this week they get blown out by Delta State, 70 to 31. So what is going on with Valdosta State? <laughs> yeah, you know, and 
in the 10 plus years I've been writing columns for D2, I, I always try to focus on positive stories and, and stories and events and games that, that can really uh, create positivity around it. But there's just no doubt that Valdosta State at this point in time is one of the stories of the season. And unfortunately, it's it's in a negative uh, a negative way or a negative connotation because this is just not at all what we expect from Valdosta State. They're... They're not. Uh, they're not the team that we expect to see. Um, the defense is literally the worst defense in the Gulf South Conference right now, uh, and that's really not debatable. Um, and, and it's very shocking because it's it's just not what we expect from a team that generally is among the most talented in the entire country. That said, uh, we did see signs of this starting to materialize last year. I mean, they got blown off the field by West Florida late in the season. And then we all saw what Ferris State was able to do to that uh, Valdosta defense in the national championship game. So we saw some signs of that, uh, but it's definitely worse this year because most of the players that were part of that defense a year ago have moved on. They either transferred or graduated, have gone on to other things. And when you watch them play, um, th- th- there's just not much on that defense. Uh, it- it's very shocking. It really is. But, uh, you know, Delta State was 10 for 10 last year, uh, last week. Uh, they literally scored a touchdown on every every possession that they touched the ball, except at the end of the half. So the question is really going to be how quickly can Tremaine Jackson and his staff get that turned around? They still have a good offense. The offense is, is still very good. Ivy Durham remains one of the best players in division two. He's the quarterback of Eldosta state, but they've got to find some answers on defense because right now, not, not only are they not looking like a playoff team, it might be a struggle just to get to a winning record with where they're at right now. So I think this weekend's game at West Alabama is going to tell us a lot about where the rest of their season is going. I, I do still think that they should beat West Alabama. Uh, they have a lot of struggles on offense. They, they have a decent defense. They, they really don't have much of an offense. I think that Valdosta State should be able to win that matchup. But if they don't play well or if they don't have the the fire in the belly, if they're not up for it, uh, that's going to tell us a lot. And uh, I, I think that after this weekend, their season's either going to go in, in a really, really bad direction or they're going sa- to salvage their season and maybe even still give themselves a shot at the playoffs. But uh, it, this, is, this is a real uh, fork in the road kind of a moment for Valdosta football this coming weekend. I just want to throw out there about Austin State. Offense scores 39 points a game. Defense gives up 35 points. That's how close they are. How much of this would you associate with, obviously, they, you know, Coach Goff moved on. He's now McNeese at FCS. Do you think that how much of it can be assigned to sort of the change in the staff at the coaching level or how much of it is deeper than that? Well, I think, you know, I kind of alluded to it a little bit earlier that I, I think that we saw the signs of a, a defense that was really trending in the wrong direction late last year. So there's a couple things that, that can be involved there. I think we have to remember that for you know, a large part of, of Gary Goff's tenure, because he's really only there for three years, uh, in the middle of his tenure, you have the COVID year. So, I mean, that really disrupted practice. It disrupted recruiting. It was just completely different. Nobody really knew how to handle that. And, you know, their roster on defense suffered a little bit through that era. Now, they were able to still get through most of last season with a, a good amount of talent 
on that defense until they had a few injuries late in the year and maybe the depth wasn't quite there. Uh, so I think that maybe it's a, a, a partly just the, the nature of college football today where it has become so easy for players to transfer, uh, maybe a bit of a recruiting dip during that COVID era. And now you do have a coaching change. And regardless of you know who comes and, and who replaces them, they could be the best coaches in the world coming or going. It still is a transition phase. And sometimes that goes smoother in some places than it does in others. So I think that you know, Valdosta fans have to be a little bit patient. I mean, Tremaine Jackson is a really good defensive mind. And I know that he's, uh, you know, he, he's probably just as shocked as anybody else. But I think he's also realistic about the, the personnel that they have. And I know that they're trying to get creative. So I think it's 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 not any one thing. It's a lot of things. But in a in a town like Valdosta that literally calls itself title town, uh, the expectations are very, very high and uh, there's going to be a lot of pressure. So there there's there's not going to be a lot of time to 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 find some answers and turn this around before that that pressure uh, really starts to, uh, to mount up. In terms of consistency, on um, you know, we have Ferris State with Tony and Is there any chance he's? Do you think he'll ever leave there, or is he happy leading that program? I, I think that he is in a place that uh, is a very good fit for him. Um, would he potentially? I mean, I, I don't think you can look at the current landscape of college football and say that any coach is is not going anywhere, barring a few who are at the really really upper end of the pay scale. Uh, so that even NFL teams couldn't afford him. So you're talking the Nick Sabans and Dallas. I don't think, other than those guys, I don't think you can say anybody is 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 in a place that they're never going to leave. Uh, but uh, Coach Nice has been there for I think it's ten or eleven years now, and uh, he's really established a factory. Uh, it's become the football factory of Division Two. So uh, I don't get the sense that he is looking to to capitalize and move on from that. I think he's been. Uh, very content, uh, you know, coaching in, in lower levels of college football and even high school football. So, you know, might we see his, I, I know that his name gets mentioned uh, as it should. It absolutely should. Um, how seriously he entertains other offers, I have no idea. But uh, just from the, the minimal interactions I've had with him and what I know of him, I, I think he's very happy at Ferris. Yeah, I think you got to wait, you know, if money is, is the money worth it too. I mean, there's probably somewhere around a hundred thousand dollars difference between what a division two coach makes and what an FCS coach makes hundred to 150,000. Um, and it's a risk that you take if you want to move up, um, and the program that you're taking over, whether it's just somebody who moved up from that program to the FCS level, or you're taking over a program that's had some issues. And it, is it really worth it where you can have, you know, the, a system, like Chuck was mentioning, and and be con- you know somewhat content where you are, um, and I think that's some of the things that you know any coach of just trying to move up from Division Two has to sort of weigh. There's also a lot to be said for being able to uh, to beat your rival consistently, and uh, Tony Nice has been doing a, a great job lately at beating his rival. Uh, but those two teams, and we're talking about Ferris State and Grand Valley, they have a, they have a really big meeting coming up called the Anchor Bone Classic. And uh, I, th- I think a lot's going to ride on that game. Uh, that's It's going to determine the GLIAC championship for sure. I mean, Saginaw Valley still could have a, a hand in this, but uh, that, that game between Grand Valley and Ferris is going to determine the, the GLIAC championship. It might determine the number one overall seed in that region. 
uh, and potentially determines who plays at home if those two teams meet in the playoffs. So uh, I think that that's going to be the biggest game of the entire regular season. And we actually have a few big ones coming up. Northwest is playing Pittsburgh State this weekend. Uh, West Florida has a couple of big ones coming up. Uh, Washita has a, a really big rivalry game coming up soon. So there's a lot of big games still to come, but I think that Grand Valley and Ferris State matchup is just going to have so much riding on it. That's probably the game of the Division II regular season uh, coming up very shortly. I know I've been hoping game day will pick them last year, and maybe this year. I mean, it's getting it's difficult. They keep picking programs they haven't done before, but I'd love to see you know, ESPN game, they pick a major D2 matchup. And I remember last year there was kind of a, a push, a, le- a bit of a push to try and get him to cover that game because the anchor bone is, is such a big, is such a big game. And with, especially now with both teams doing so well, you know, I'm biased, but I'm biased, but they missed an opportunity. ESPN really missed an opportunity last year because the time to do it would be when both teams are really, really good which they were last year and they are again this year. And with all due respect to Ferris State, the time to do it would be when it's at Grand Valley. Uh, the facilities at Grand Valley, the setting there, the crowd that, that would be turned out for, for that game. Uh, they had over 17,000 people at Lubber Stadium at Grand Valley for that game last year. So there, there's no doubt that uh, the Grand Valley faithful and the Ferris faithful as well would have really turned out for college game day and given ESPN a, a heck of an experience. So yeah, they, they missed an opportunity. So regionally, we've been kind of hanging around in the East Coast and kind of a Great Lakes area. One division, well, one region, I should say, because there's, there's really three conferences spread over it, or kind of the Midwest, where you're talking about the kind of lower Midwest, Kansas, Missouri, Oklahoma, Arkansas. It's just a rich D2 football culture in those states. What's the current status or what's the current state of that region? Yeah, I'm told there's some pretty good football out there. At the I've Division heard. II level. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the, the MIAA is, I, I think it is still considered the top conference in Division II. It, it's kind of the, the SEC, if you will, uh, of Division II. And, and it's really just because of the, the, the quality and the depth of that league. Um, in the past, you definitely could say it was the GSC uh, and also the GLIAC in its years. But the MIAA, which is mostly teams in Kansas, Missouri, um, yeah, there's just some really, really good football there. I mean, Northwest Missouri State is is obviously one of the blue bloods of, of D2. Um, and interestingly, they're they're struggling a little bit this year. They, they still have the, the defense that they normally do, but they don't have much of an offense, and they've had some some injury problems at quarterback. Uh, that, that game with Northwest and Pittsburgh State uh, this coming weekend, that's a huge deal. They've played that game at Arrowhead Stadium quite a few times and, and had really big turnouts for it. I think they're expecting a sellout in Pittsburgh, Kansas for that event this weekend. That's really going to be a huge game. But you've got some other players in that in that league as well. Emporia State's looking pretty good right now. And in the GSC, I'll, I'll shut up for a second and see if Chris wants to talk a little bit about the, the, the GAC because that's a really good league with multiple teams that, uh, that are looking like playoff contenders as well. Yeah, the, the Great American... Um, conference, uh, which is a conference that covers uh, Arkansas and Oklahoma, is 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 one of those silo conferences. But even when they get to the playoffs, they they tend to have some uh, really exciting uh, results that come come out of their teams. And and the two in particular, um, the two heavyweights are are Washington Baptist and Hardy. 
Um, and Harding is, is fun to watch because they they run a, a version of the option offense and they run it religiously. Um, it, it's always kind of said that, you know, if they complete um, more than three or four passes a game, uh, things are not going very well. They might lose the game. Uh, so um, it, it, they're, they're great to watch. They actually have already played um, this, this season and, and watched how won the game. Um, and, and, and they kind of run a, a similar offensive system um, in, in terms of uh, some, some a unique way of running a, a option system. So uh, they're going to be a very tough out in, in, when they get to the playoffs, and I wouldn't be surprised if Harding um, made the playoffs as well because, uh, yeah, th- those are just the two weekend and, and uh, season in, season out that really are at the top. Uh, of the of that conference, you know, after them, you're kind of looking at someone like Henderson State, another team that has made the playoffs in recent years, um, and and uh, Henderson and, and Washington are, are right a, right across the street, literally from each other, uh, have a, a very intense rivalry. They don't even need to take a bus; they can just walk to the other person's stadium, and you can actually watch or see this the the opposing um, team stadium from 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 the other stadium. Um, so, you know, they're, they're all, they're kind of here playing spoil, a little bit of spoil this year. Um, but they're also the team, another team to watch out in, 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 uh, in the great American conference. Yeah. And I think if you venture a, a little bit further South into Texas in the Lone Star conference, that actually gets into super region four. Uh, of course we all know about you know, high school and college football in the state of Texas, and they certainly have their share of, of really good division two programs as well. Uh, I think Angelo state is a team that is probably not being talked about very much, uh, not really making a whole lot of headlines, but they are a really, really good football team. We actually have them sitting number three in the D2 football top 25 right now behind Ferris state and grand Valley. Uh, That's a team I am really going to be watching for uh, as we get later into the season. I I have them, uh, I'd projected them to win that bracket and super region four at the start of the season. And I think to this point, they, they look every bit the, the team that can do that. And you have a really kind of interesting story in that conference with Texas A&M Kingsville uh, currently at five and oh, they they've been through some really rough years recently. And when I first started following division two, about 20 years ago, Texas A&M Kingsville was one of the teams, like their name was out there all the time. They were always a threat in the playoffs, uh, really one of the best teams and best programs in the country at that point point. Uh, and they've been through some lean years through like the 2010s and, and up through really uh, through to this season. So to see them at uh, at 5-0 and right now, to see them in the rankings again, I think it's good for the Lone Star Conference. I think it's good for that region. Uh, and I think it's going to be really enjoyable to see uh, how far they can take it and, and see if they can actually get back into the playoffs for the first time in a long time. So there's some other teams there as well. And of course, Central Washington, which is about as far as from Texas as, as you could get. Um, they're actually playing in that conference this year, as, as Chris alluded to earlier. So uh, that's going to be a really interesting conference race to, to follow over the next six weeks as well. Hey, Chris mentioned Henderson State. I'm actually going to be going to see them play on Saturday at, at East Central. So the, la- the last time I was at East Central, I saw them play Harding, and Harding completed three passes, and all of them were for touchdowns. Anyhow, so we, met, we talked about Valdosta State earlier. It seems like they're probably not going to be near the top of the Gulf South Conference this year. Who do you think is going to step into that void? Is it going to be Delta State, or will 
West Florida or West Georgia to turn things around after their early losses. Well, I definitely want to hear what Chris thinks, but uh, I, I will, uh, I'll give you my opinion because I actually uh, have a little bit of a breakdown of this in my column that's on the, uh, the D2Football.com front page, uh, my national preview column. I talked a little bit about the, the current state of the Gulf South Conference because uh, I find it very fascinating. Uh, it, it doesn't look like Valdosta State is a team that's going to contend for the title. Um, so who is? And I think at this point, it's very easy to say, well, Delta State is, is probably the answer there. And at this point, they are. Uh, they're undefeated. And you could really look at it uh, from the standpoint of, well, they've already taken care of West Florida. They beat them two weeks ago and they beat Valdosta this past week. Uh, it really should be downhill from there. I guess you could look at it that way, but it certainly is not going to be the case. They still have to play West Georgia. Uh Every game in that conference is going to be difficult. Mississippi College just beat West Georgia, so they're they're a tougher out than we thought. Um, West Alabama is usually around a 500 team, but they've always got a lot of talent. And a team that Delta State has actually struggled with a couple times in recent years is North Greenville. So I actually said in, in my column, I will be surprised if Delta State gets through the season undefeated even though the toughest games that they have to play theoretically are already behind them. Uh, I'll be surprised if they get through that season undefeated. Uh, all that said, they do look like the, the probably the most complete team right now. I still think West Florida is the most talented. My concern with them is that they just seem to be struggling to pull it all together uh, and play 60 minute games. Um, if they can get to that point, where they're playing a complete game week in and week out, I do think that West Florida is the most talented team. But having already suffered that loss to Delta State, that kind of puts them behind in the conference race. So I definitely do look at the Statesman as the uh, the leading contender to win that conference. But uh, I, I certainly don't think it's going to be easy for them to, uh, to, to get there. Yeah, you know, it, it, in recent history, it, the, the, the team that wins the Gulf South is um, they run the table. And I think that it, things seem to be a little bit more even at the top. This, there's a little bit more parity at the top this year than in prior years. And so it, it actually right now, if you look at the Gulf South standings, um, there's there's Delta at 2-0 and in the conference and Shorter at 0-2, and, and everybody else has won a game and lost a game in conference. Um, so... And Delta has been kind of, you know, sleepy the last couple of years. And so, you know, have they been building up something to where they can be that next Gulf South team to, to, to run the table in conference? Uh, kind of remains to be seen. I, I agree with Chuck. Um, you know, West Florida is, you know, the, probably the more talented team, but they've got to pull it all together. Um, and, and that's been a little bit of a, of a struggle uh, in the last couple of weeks, uh, they really struggled against North Greenville, even though they won that game. And then, you know, West Georgia has just sort of been this, this kind of, they just, they just been there like close, but they just haven't found enough to get over the hump to, to, to take, you know, to, to get to the top of the standings in, in the last couple of years. So, but, you know, they have a championship winning coach. And, and you know that they're going to leave it all out on the field and they have a really, you know, a really good offense. And, you know, maybe Mississippi River, Mississippi um, um, College is uh, just more of a blip because they run, again, an option offense and it's, and, and it's something you don't prepare for. 
um, every week. Uh, so it, it's going to be really interesting to see. I don't think that um, the winner of the Gulf South makes it through uh, unscathed in conference play. Um, but, you know, if I have to say, you know, is there a, a, a team that's, that's at the top right now, I'd have to agree with, with Chuck. It's probably Delta State at this point, who did, by the way, defeat West Florida in overtime. Just wanted to do a quick station ID. You're all listening to RCFB Talk 89. We're here talking Division II football with Chuck Bittner and Chris Ferguson of D2Football.com. You know, guys, I want to respect your time. It's been about 40, oh, about 48 minutes. If you guys are still available, I know I have, we, we definitely have a few more questions for you. It's been really interesting. Yeah, I can go a little longer. All good. Excellent. You know, so kind of sticking with the Gulf South Conference, why was West Florida so successful so fast? Well, um, a couple of <laughs> things, a couple of things. So, you know, uh, West Florida is in an area that doesn't have a lot of um, homegrown college football. Um, you have uh, you have to go to Alabama to get to like um, South Alabama, you know, who's a v- uh, FBS school now. Uh, and then you'd have to go all the way to the east um, to get to Florida State. So they're sort of in this Florida panhandle uh, kind of to themselves. And, and, and you know, UW, UWF is not a small school. It's, it's got over 10,000 students. Um, so it, between that and having some pretty big donors in the area um, and bringing in Coach uh, um, Pete Shinnick, who – also had experience uh, in um, basically getting a program up and running. He did the same thing at USC Pembroke. Um, there was a there was just a lot of of of, of found, uh, foundational pieces that were that were available to him to get things going um, pretty quickly. You know, Florida is still a pretty talent rich state. Um, they there's a lot of players that they have gotten from the state, from like Central Florida, for example. Um, that has really helped them out. And um, and then they have access to, to Mobile, to the Mobile area, which um, which also has a lot of talent, too. Uh, so they, they're they just in an area that I would say is a, is, is a gold mine. And they have really mined that. Pensacola also has really good football, too, um, at the high school level. So and they've had, I think, a, a um, high school uh, state championship in the last few years. So all of those things kind of come together that gave West Florida an opportunity to kind of make it at that higher level. And they've certainly taken advantage of that. Yeah. So Chris is right about everything he said. And in, in one word, it boils down to talent. (laughs) They, they did an exceptional job of being able to find and and bring in talent. Uh, They have a lot of players on their roster that played division one football. And that makes a huge difference when you have that much talent on one roster. And Pete Shinnick has to be given a lot of credit for the way he's able to bring in players who've been in lots of other programs in lots of other systems and get them to come together as a team in such a short period of time, because he's almost repeating that same process every year because they have a lot of players that come in from other institutions who've, who've been in other coaching staffs, they've been other programs. It's almost a process that you're repeating every year. So the way he's able to get these teams to come together as quickly as he does and put the quality of product onto the field is, is, is pretty remarkable. That's definitely a name that, that uh, athletic directors 
at the Division One level should be thinking about and, and, and looking to, particularly if it's a program that they're looking at starting from uh, starting from square one, building a program from, from the ground up. Uh, you know, Chris actually mentioned this is not the first time that he has done that. Uh, so it's, it's a combination of many factors. Exceptional coaching is, is certainly a part of that. When we're talking about talent-rich areas, this kind of does lead to something that was touched on a bit earlier the complete absence now of Division II uh, in California and the Southwest, but particularly California, which is always a talent hotbed. What could be done or is it even possible for Division II to reestablish itself in that area beyond the pocket that is up in the Pacific Northwest? But is it is it possible for D2 to make it there again? I mean, we heard like Simpson College wanting to join the NAIA and we'll see how, or Simpson University, pardon me, didn't mean to change that name, but I mean, even then, I mean, there's, there's such a lack of it in the state. Can it be changed? I don't know. I mean, there, there is, there are a lot of division two institutions in California. Uh, there's just no division two football. So you know, I think you, you would need a, a couple of existing Division II members in the state to have an interest in launching football programs. And I think it might actually take some of the GNAC pro- programs that disappeared over the years to maybe have an interest in returning. So you'd be looking at like a Humboldt State or maybe a Western Washington, um, some of those programs that, that kind of went away over the, over the years. Uh, it, it can be done. There's a cluster of, of Division three football programs, actually, in California. And if you look at the pinpoint distribution of Division three, it's almost entirely northeast and, and a little bit in the Midwest. And you have a few down in Texas and, and a little bit in the south, uh, south central part of the country. And you've got this tiny cluster of Division three schools in California. And they're able to make it work by playing you know, a small conference schedule, and then they are, they're able to play some NAIA programs that are out West. So it definitely could work, but I, I think it's going to take more than one institution that says, we want to play football. I think you're going to have to have multiple that kind of come together and say, we want to have a, a conference out here. And it probably would be schools that, that make up different conferences today that might need to come together and say, we want to play football. And of course, in division two, you, you have some flexibility where, you know, if you want to field a, a, an athletic team in a sport that your home conference doesn't sponsor, you could have an associate membership in a different conference. So it's possible to do it, but I think it's going to take more than one institution kind of coming together and deciding we want to have football out here. And, and right now I, I don't see the interest there. You know, it's really interesting too, because, you know, California has a pretty rich JUCO circuit. There are a lot of schools that actually, Division two schools that actually go out to California and recruit in the JUCO space. I wonder if maybe that is also part of the reason why Division two hasn't really worked as well, just because some of those individuals can go to the JUCO level as well. That was just something I've always sort of pondered as a potential hurdle, too. That's a great observation. There's more, I mean, after the kind of pre-pandemic shakedown where the Arizona JUCOs all closed, or most of them did, or at least for for football, I should say, the programs did. California now, I believe, has technically one or two more JUCOs playing football than the rest of the country combined. So that was a great observation. I didn't even think about that in terms of what could be sort of eating up that talent. I mean, I grew up in California, so yeah, I know. I mean, my, my hometown had a college football team, but just, you know, <laughs> it seems like every small town in the Central Valley does. 
You know, uh, one area we haven't touched on, we've talked about the super regions, touched on every single one except for super region one. So in the Northeast, what's the outlook there right now, just so we can be kind of completist about this? Well, so Super Region 1 is uh, that's sort of my home region, although I, I, I lived in North Carolina for several years. I grew up in Pennsylvania. I went to a, a PSAC school. Uh, so it's sort of my home region, and I've, I've been to football games at nearly every Super Region 1 school. Uh, so it's, uh, it's very near and dear to me. Um, historically, the, the region is uh, is I won't say dominated because I'll, I'll definitely make some enemies there. But uh, the PSAC is typically the conference that will have the most playoff participants in the league and has a long history of, of winning that region. We've certainly seen success come out of the Mountain East. Uh, Notre Dame College, which is based uh, just outside of Cleveland. Uh, in the Mountain East Conference, they've had a, an extremely successful run over the last five or six years. Um, that's certainly looking like the, the the case again this year, that they're going to be the class of that league, and, and they do look like a, a playoff caliber team. They will probably be the only playoff participant out of out of that league, the Mountain East Conference. The Northeast 10, which is mostly New England schools, uh, that again is probably going to be a one-bid league into the playoffs. And New Haven looks like they're likely to repeat as the conference champion and likely to make it back to the playoffs. It's still possible that there could be a, a second team out of that league that makes the playoffs, but uh, it, it'll probably take probably take a little bit of craziness in the PSAC in order for that to happen. Uh, and then you've got the the GMAC, which at this point I think you're probably looking at Ashland as the the best bet to make it to the playoffs. They're actually pretty highly ranked and still undefeated right now. So they have a great season going, a uh, very good chance to make some noise in the playoffs. And then in the PSAC, you're probably looking at about five teams competing for three playoff spots. And the, the front runners right now, of course, are Shepard, who is highly ranked in, in the Division II poll, undefeated, and they have the defending Harlan Hill Trophy winner Tyson Bajant at quarterback. They look like the front runner right now. I think IUP in the, the Western Division, they beat Slippery Rock as their big rival last week. That was a huge win and a, and a result that will have a lot of impact throughout the region. Uh, so I really look at IUP in the West. They've got a huge game with uh, California this coming weekend. So and Slippery Rock is certainly not out of it yet either, uh, nor is Kutztown. Uh, who was in the playoffs a year ago. So I think you're probably looking at about those five teams uh, in the East. It's really Shepard and Kutztown. And in the West division, IUP, Slippery Rock, and uh, California. I think among those five teams, you're probably looking at, at three playoff bids there. So it's going to uh, get really tight towards the end of the season. I'd just throw in there that one of the interesting things about Super Region 1 is there's been – in a few a couple of years ago, there was a lot of change in the way that the Super Regions were constructed, as in they changed conferences. So the CIAA used to be in Super Region 1. It moved to Super Region 2, where it was back in the in the aughts. And in its place, they was the Great Midwest, who is a collection uh, that of schools that include schools that used to be in the the, the GLIAC now competing. So it is really interesting to kind of see how they are now competing um, for different spots in Super Region 1 playoffs because, yeah, the PSAC has, has sort of reigned supreme for some time. But I think we're going to start to see a little bit more action out of that conference for multiple playoff spots in the future. 
So one question I wanted to ask is, which one of you has visited more Division II football stadiums? <laughs> oh, <that's> <laughs> <a> <laughs> wow, you're immediately deferring to me. I think your count's probably getting up there, but I, I'm, I've, I've been to, it's very close to 100 Division II school stadiums that I have. Wow. I think I've, I've got to recalibrate because there's a couple, you know, I have to reshift every year when some schools reclassify, but it's very close to 100. I have a meager, like maybe twenty or thirty. I haven't even counted yet, but so you really, got to put stuff into a spreadsheet, Chris. I've I've got it all on a spreadsheet. I just have to go look at the numbers. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to have to do that now. I don't know what the total is for. I think for all divisions, it's uh, it's somewhere around two fifty, two fifty to two sixty stadiums that I've been to. That's impressive. You're like, I mean, there's so many people out there who would put that on their bucket list to be able to say they've been to that many stadiums to see games too. I mean, that's incredible. Most, a lot of those have been, uh, you know, just uh, stop and see a stadium a- along my travels. It's it's funny how these those hobbies just sort of naturally evolve. Uh, living in Pennsylvania for several years, I used to road trip to Florence, Alabama, where the championship game for Division Two was for a number of years, and uh, we we would make that trip, my brother and I, and, and sometimes my dad and I, and we would stop and see stadiums along the way, and then just sort of evolved into this uh, into this hobby. So now, anytime I travel anywhere, I've got to stop and uh, you know make sure that the route uh, the route's going to pass a few uh, football stadiums. And uh, I think uh, I think Chris has has caught that same illness recently. Yes, yes, I have actual. I love it. Yeah. You know, as we kind of slowly wrap things up, there's sort of just sort of some kind of quick, fun questions I also wanted to ask you. Well, first of all, what game has got you the most excited this weekend? I would say for me, certainly Northwest Pitt. I mean, that's just a huge rivalry game. Um, and there's a lot riding on, on that game. One game that I'm looking forward to seeing, hopefully in person, is um, Virginia State, Bowie State. Um, because there's such fierce, there's such fierce rivalry uh, rivals, and um, there's just so much riding in the CIAA North this year with trying to keep up with Virginia Union, and so and, and there's a lot of storylines behind that particular game only because uh, Virginia State's head coach used to be a Bowie State head coach, uh, was a Bowie State football player, the office coordinator for Virginia State is also Bowie State former quarterback as well. So there's just a lot of just angles to kind of approach it. Uh, and I think it's just such a big game. It's going to be fun. And I'll, uh, I'll throw in one more plug on my, uh, my Around the Nation column on D2. I've actually got 10 games that I highlighted. So I'll just pick out uh, a few real quickly. Um, Pitt Northwest is, is one of the most anticipated games of the entire Division II season every year. Uh, and there's a lot at stake, as there usually is. So I'm very excited about that one. And in Super Region 1, uh, I've got IUP at California, a uh, game I alluded to a few minutes ago. Uh, IUP is ranked. Uh, they call that game the Coal Bowl because yeah. it's uh, Western Pennsylvania. It's it's in a very blue-collar coal region. So they call it the Coal Bowl. Um, California has actually kind of dominated that series more recently, but uh, I think IUP has a really good chance to, uh, to go win on California's uh, home field, which uh, the Vulcans did to them last year. So... I have IUP as a slight favorite in that. I think it's going to be a really competitive game, and um, I am hoping to be there for that on Saturday afternoon. So if someone out there wants to check out D2 football this weekend, would those be the games you'd pick? And I say that knowing that, in effect, you're probably going to jinx whatever game you pick (laughs) to unexpectedly be a one-sided blowout 
or have massive audiovisual issues. We had that happen one time. <laughs> the, we, we before the season for NAIA began, we had like you know one of their guys come on here, and the game he picked, we he was he wrote me in a direct message on Twitter, like, of course the game I picked is offline. Because they're having problems right now. But that aside, what would be your pick for someone who wants to, to check out some D2 football this weekend? Well, the, the one you would want to watch that's really going to, to give Division Two a great representation is Pittsburgh State and Northwest Missouri. Uh, now, if somebody had an interest in watching that, the MIAA does have a pay-per-view service, so it, it would not be free to watch that. Don't get Chris and I started on that, but uh, that that will be behind a paywall. Uh, Cal and IUP will be available on the PSAC digital network at no cost. And I'll throw out a couple of others that could be viewed at no cost. Minnesota State at Wayne State on the NSIC digital network is a big game that I'm watching for. Uh, And if you happen to have a Flow Sports subscription, which uh, Flow Sports has has really become a great go-to streaming service for uh, a lot of Division II conferences, Ferris State at Saginaw Valley should be a very, uh, a very, very big game and a very well attended one. Uh, that should really be a good representation for Division Two as well. I'd also throw out there West Florida, West Georgia too, for sure. Oh yeah, for sure, because we're going to see which one of those teams can get that kind of turn that season around. You know, before we do say goodbye, could you each of us tell our listeners where to find you? Well, Chris, not, like, uh, not like your house. I mean, you know, like, <laughs> like, 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 Chris is hard yeah. to pin down. He, he travels all over the place. You're never going to find him. <laughs> I live in my car by the levee. <laughs> <laughs> you can find me uh, here on Twitter at, at D2KFerg is my handle. I also have the same handle on Instagram where I post like videos, pictures, things like that, share a lot of information. And then I also write columns for HBCU Game Day. From you know, week to week, I probably write at least one column for them. And then also, I write a column every week on the d2football.com website. Yeah, and Chris and I are both very active here on, on Twitter, especially when uh, when we got games going on. I'm at d2chuck on Twitter. And, of course, all of the content that we put out, we've got a whole cast of columnists that write about the, the various leagues. Anybody who's you know kind of new to Division Two, learning about it, needs to discover more. D2Football.com is your source. It is your hub. We have a message board where you can interact with other fans, uh, and definitely make sure to check out Inside D2 Football on Sunday nights. We stream that on YouTube. You can also find it streamed on on Facebook and Twitter as well. That's a live show that we do, and and people are welcome to join and, and interact with us just as we do here. And uh, yeah, we're always talking Division Two football. Well, thanks, guys. This is a really good conversation. It was it was fun to hear about D2 football. And I know Inkblot actually mentioned you two as being really active when we wanted to kind of get a better understanding of what was going on in D2 on Twitter. So we just wanted to thank you both for joining us. Very happy to do it. Yeah, absolute pleasure. Hope to do it again. Absolutely, yeah. There'll be more football to be played. We'd love to have you guys back. Well, I just wanted to say... Thanks to all of you out there who have been listening. This was RCFB Talk 89. Our guests were Chuck Bittner and Chris Ferguson. Chuck's the national columnist for D2Football.com. Chris is also a contributor to D2Football.com on the CIAA, as well as to HBCU Game Day. As they mentioned, both are panelists on Inside D2 Football, which streams live on YouTube and Facebook at 8 p.m. Eastern on Sundays. My name's Bob Akayeri. My co-host today was Inkblot. 
Enjoy the rest of the week. Enjoy the upcoming weekend of college football. Hope you all have a good one. Now, I'm going to hang up and listen.